Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. No matter where in the world you live right now or how this COVID-19 pandemic has affected you, chances are you're reevaluating many things in your life, especially concerning the resilience of your lifestyle in the face of changes outside of your control. And I'm right there with you. But I've been doing exactly this kind of analysis of resilience and ecological impact for clients for many years. So that's why I've put together a new resource to help people like you who want to start taking steps towards self-sufficiency right now. If you're interested in starting to produce your own food, cut costs while maintaining your health and livelihood, and reconnect with your community to increase your support network, then my new book, Homesteading for Every Home, was written just for you. This book will guide you through simple steps that you can take from any living environment to build resilience in your life and community by taking stock of what you already have to work with, and to leverage it for greater abundance in an uncertain future. Because of how important I believe this information is, I've made it free to download for a limited time. So go to the education tab at AbundantEdge.com to download your copy today and start taking important steps towards a regenerative lifestyle, even in the face of a post-pandemic economy. The more people and communities that work together to create ecological abundance and resilient local economies, the better chance we have to create a new normal that includes the health and well-being of all life. Alright, welcome back everyone to this ongoing series on regenerative agriculture. Last week we kicked off with an interview with Joel Salatin, and in this session I've got another great interview with one of the most influential regen ag practitioners in Europe. Now there's a lot of inspiring voices in the regenerative agriculture community, but few have done such a thorough job of documenting and publishing every step of the development of a small profitable farm the way Richard Perkins has done with Ridgedale Permaculture. Especially now that I've decided to put down roots in Europe, I've been looking for examples of profitable small farming models for inspiration for my own project here. And between Richard's YouTube channel and two books, Making Small Farms Work, and the new volume titled Regenerative Agriculture, there are few better resources to guide you step-by-step through all the design considerations from landscape analysis, business planning, crunching numbers, and creative paths to market. Though I spoke to Richard for the first time back in season one, I invited him back for this episode to talk about some of the massive changes that are coming about from the COVID health crisis and how he's seen it affect small farms around Europe. We explore topics like farm enterprise analysis, suggestions for direct-to-consumer marketing and collaboration, and Richard also talks about his observations over the years of transformation of his small farm in northern Sweden, not only from a land health perspective, but also things that he's noticed about his teaching and mentorship strategy, as well as the characteristics he thinks are essential for succeeding in farming. Now this interview became a lot more philosophical than our first session, and for those of you who are hoping to hear Richard's backstory and description of his farm and business strategy, I've linked to our first interview in the show notes on the website, or you can find them by searching for Richard Perkins on the search bar at the top. 
Now, I also want to say a sincere thank you to all of you wonderful listeners who have reached out to check up on me during this difficult time of lockdowns and social distancing. I'm very grateful and fortunate to say that my partner and I are healthy and safe and that we're finally able to get out of the house a bit as Spain has begun to ease restrictions on the lockdown in a gradual transition back to a new normal. I hope this message finds all of you listening out there healthy and safe as well. And now I'll hand things over to Richard. Hey, welcome back, Richard. It's such a pleasure to be talking with you again. How are you doing? Great. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, it's good to be back on here and spend some time chatting with you. So, yeah. Well, yeah, well, this is wild times that we're living in right now with the coronavirus lockdown and just the way that it's affecting the whole globe. It's a, it's a unique opportunity to explore some new topics here. And tell me a little bit about how things are going at the farm with these new developments for you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's we're actually in the process of still really taking it in because this is the time when our, like the 1st of April is actually when our team typically arrive. Uh, we've actually got three of the team here now. And there's another girl coming in a couple of weeks if the travel bans aren't, you know, aren't progressing any further. Mm -hmm. But we've been going through all kinds of processes, to be honest. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, we were all really sick and it was quite a long sickness. And I, you know, in, in the current state of things, we were questioning what we had. My partner had the stereotypical symptoms and I had more just like really bad flu symptoms but we started mm. sort of second guessing but here in sweden it's the the government has both been criticized and praised for its approach and i think more in in the world stage more critical response actually because business is open as normal now i do get the sense people are sort of keeping their distance from each other but sweden's not exactly a touchy-feely place anyway hmm. Um, but I did get the sense when I've been to town, like people are spending, you know, they're staying away from each other more so than than normal. And so we've we've been going through a process of what it, of what's the best approach for us to take because we're not fully trusting the government's response, which is, uh, you know, basically we we trust our citizens to be healthy and do what's needed to avoid the spread which would seem quite lackadaisical in relation to most other countries in the world, but the mm. death toll and infection rate is very low here, but they haven't been testing. So it's, you know, it wouldn't be any Seen surprise low, if yeah. the infection rate is much higher. So we, well, we've been going through a big process of deciding whether to keep our son home from daycare because we, we basically analyzed the situation when the first crew member arrived. And bearing in mind for listeners further afield, like Europe's in, like each country is taking its own course and it's, it's still possible to travel within certain countries in Europe and for, for certain countries, it's not possible at this time. So we've had to, yeah, so we've had to select, we, it, it, led us to take a last minute decision in the choice of team and that's really been down to Johanna this year. I would normally be very much involved in that process but I was meant to be away this summer so I felt it was much more important for Johanna to go through that selection process but a big part of that was choosing people from places that would be easeful to get here so we basically closed down all applications from 
for people outside of Europe because it mm -hmm. just felt too risky for someone to come from Australia or Brazil and be stuck here for an indefinite amount of time. And of course, yeah. so that affected us already. But then, you know, I also, I follow the UK news a lot being from there and just seeing what's going on globally, we decided, okay, so the biggest risk factor we have is actually our son going to daycare and potentially bringing something back because we're in a unique position where we can totally self-isolate ourselves. We have a whole human diet on the farm. And once the team's here, we're living quite, you know, in a bubble. We're farming every day. So the only, the weakest point for us in the coronavirus context would be our son going to daycare and then the way we sell but i can talk a bit more about that because we've already put measures in place anticipating things getting worse well let's so, get to the, but it's a big the choice i know i mean in a minute um sure i want to hear a little bit about you know with the regenerative agricultural model that you've promoted and that you've really exemplified on your farm Let's talk a little bit about the resiliency of the kind of diverse business model that you've pioneered and how regenerative agriculture strategies help to build resilience on the business side as well as through enhanced ecosystem services, as this is a, a really important time to be looking at that through all business lenses. Yeah, well, just going back one step first, I think like the biggest decision that uh, Im uh, impacts our daily life is the decision to keep our son at home. Mm -hmm. And he's only three. So it takes like right now we're Johanna and I are working two hour shifts alternately. And it's, it's, it's no big deal. And obviously a lot more people are in a lot more pressing situations, but it's it has quite a massive impact on the running of the farm because this is the time of year when the most activity is going on to start up the season and we're typically running flat out and training people that haven't been on the farm before so it's it's an interesting thing and it plays into that question of resiliency because we're we're pretty stretched at this time of year that it's it's definitely affecting our time so we've changed our daily schedule so we sleep very early and wake up even earlier than we typically do to be able to deal with admin and things like that that we would typically have a little time in the morning before we get into the the work day outside when our son would be at daycare so it's obviously going to impact a lot of people with their kids at home and we only have one child so i imagine people with larger families that are also trying to run the farm are are going to find that challenging just to yeah. fit in things around the day. And it's also a blessing in disguise in that, you know, there's nothing more wonderful than, than having this uh, son on the farm and including him in the processes. But it, it really does impact time, which is a big thing. But then, yeah, more addressing your question directly, I think, well, there's many angles we could look at that from, but it's, definitely helpful like it's it's hard to, at this point to predict how things will go throughout the summer but one of the immediate benefits i see in a diverse product portfolio is that we have a lot of products that can be stored so frozen meats that we can put a, a year on the best before that gives you a lot of flexibility 
And like right now, it seems like there's an increased demand for local food, but it's not clear to me or obvious to me how it will go selling fresh produce. You know, there could be draconian regulations coming down the line that will impact market gardeners, for example, in ways that are unprecedented. We just right, don't know. Right. So having storable products is definitely feels useful. But also I think there's there's something about a diverse product portfolio that that means like something we've always seen at the farm is having eggs helps you sell vegetables and having chickens helps you sell eggs and you know having complementary products and having mm-hmm. a, a a broad portfolio brings you customers like at the rico rings that we sell at we're always consistently by far the busiest and i would say it's because we have a whole range of products most people are selling just vegetables or just lamb or whatever but we're selling all different types of meats and eggs and vegetables and it's it's very convenient for someone to be able to pick up a whole bunch of their shopping in one go now rico as a whole is a very convenient model because you have a baker a dairy person meat producers egg producers veg producers so it's convenient to a uh, to a customer that can pick up you know, a large proportion of their food there. But we see the knock-on effect of that through our farm sales in particular. So I think there's something generally to be said for having a diverse product portfolio. And in that adage that I think we even talked about last time I was on here, that saying Joel Salatin says, if it's much easier to find 100 customers that will spend 1,000 euros with you, than finding a thousand that will spend a hundred euros with you. And that's very, very true. It's a little gem of wisdom, yeah. It applies to so many things. Mm -hmm. It's very true in our experience. So I think that's a good strategy at all times. But certainly it's something to consider even for people only producing single items or like single types of products. This is a great time to consider online sales, delivery service, and collaborations with other farmers to be able to supply, you know, one's weekly shopping in one drop to minimize contact time, etc. So even if people are farming one particular product, there's still a way to get the benefit of that diversity by collaborating. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that happening. And that's beneficial on so many other levels because of efficiency and you know, imagine you were collaborating with four different types of producers and you were running the Rico rings like we run, you'd only have to go once a month. I mean, it would be perfect. Yeah. No, I mean, this turns out to be quite an ideal circumstance given the, the restrictions that are being implemented in a lot of places. And even when there aren't restrictions in place, just people's tendency to want to avoid the situation uh, different marketing models like the Rico rings. And I've heard other people adapting their sales strategy, perhaps if they were selling mostly directly to, uh, to restaurants, which in many cases mm-hmm. have shut down, starting to offer delivery services or drive through pickups from their locations. And have you started to consider yep. any other marketing strategies in the face of these big changes? Or are you still kind of doubling down on this one that seems to be very well adapted to the situation? Well, there's two two angles on that, and 
well, firstly, it's quite early on. I noticed my friend Mikkel, who's running eggs and and micro dairy over in Denmark, and I know that nearly all his sales are wholesale to restaurants in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So I immediately felt concerned for him when they were shutting down over there because I knew that that would be very challenging times. And I think he had, I don't know, 50,000 eggs backing up and he was, just didn't know what to do. But they very quickly switched their uh, selling strategy to private people and uh, like a drive-through, a farm drive-through where there's no contact at all, pre-sold mm-hmm. and people pick it up and they don't even have any face-to-face contact. And it appears to be going extremely well. I think a lot of people I've seen across in America, a lot of people are seeing huge increases in sales and it's it's really, there's going to be some knock-on effects long-term from that, which is great. But we haven't actually had to do that we we do sell to restaurants but it makes up 20 to 30 percent of our revenue overall but we also have a waiting list for things like our egg subscriptions are always you know we sell eggs for three months at a time and there's always a waiting list for them mm-hmm. and we completely sold out of our like we keep some of our pastured broilers in the freezer to, to spread over the winter because we're still selling eggs all through the winter and we sold out in november i think so we're in a rush to to produce more wow. and and so we haven't changed our tact yet so so going on from that in sweden right now there's people are going to work and businesses are open even if people are you know keeping themselves to themselves a bit more. But right now, the government advice is like restricting gatherings of more than 50 people. And so what we've done specifically for the Rico ring, and a Rico ring, if people aren't aware what that is, is basically a pre-sold online farmer's market running through Facebook. And you need to go look it up if you want to know more about it because it's, it's, a, very, it's a very sweet setup. It's the most efficient sales model I've come across going on and we've been really championing that here and a lot of our students and followers have been taking that off to other parts of the world which is fantastic now that would typically be a group of 10 to 20 producers say turning up in their vehicles and they've already pre-sold whatever it is that they have be it vegetables eggs meat dairy whatever and so people are turning up and picking up their goods that they've already paid for and so it's it's a a gathering and a lot of people pass through in a short time in the summer we run those for an hour in the winter for half an hour and we'll see you know 150 customers come through and they're just basically not taking very long at the stand they're just picking up their goods saying hello and off they go and so immediately what we've done is set up some guidelines for making sure that we spread out the distance between people and the timing of them coming through. And we're, we're sort of looking ahead to see, well, look, you know, some countries are limited to gatherings of no more than two. So it's, if we project this thing forward, the way it's going in most places, then we need to already start having systems in place for, when it's not possible to run it like normal. 
So already, Johanna's just actually gone there today to to the bigger RICO that we participate in, and she's gone as a volunteer to help start this system. So she's been very much at the heart of setting up the RICO rings that we're part of and is an admin for them. So she's gone to sort of get everything in line. I think she's been the most proactive person about this. I think the general attitude in Sweden is quite relaxed compared to most places Hmm. so the way we've come up with for now is um we've organized the parking so that people don't all come at once and stand in the queue it's like five people come in at a time into the space and there's a couple of traffic cones and one of the admins is letting people out and so it's one in one out and we've told people you know something like based on the alphabetical order of their names if we've got and so we've made the slot a bit longer so right now it would normally be half an hour to pick up all the produce for all the people from all the producers so we've extended that to an hour the summer timing and people should aim to come in these five minute windows now obviously it won't work like clockwork but people are pretty respectful of that so it means people will be coming in in a constant flow of less people and then we're using the tables and stands as a way to distance ourselves now some producers just open the boot of their car and just stand there and you know shake hands and whatever so we've always had a a stand and treated it a bit like a market so we've told people like you need to you know bring a table and separate yourself and we've informed all the rico customers which is nice because it's all on Facebook. You have a, a ring for the customers and then you have a producer's page, a separate page for producers where we can discuss these sort of things. But we've made all the customers aware ahead of time that, hey, it's not a time for chit-chat right now. It's like, please come in the time slot within your hour as best you can and just pick up your stuff. And it seems, I think it's going really well like that. And so the only thing it's really led us to consider in terms of changing our strategy is offering less options with our veg. And and the way we've done veg is we went from veg boxes to, as Rico came along, we started selling bunches, which were basically planned around veg boxes, but offered people more choice at a premium. So they were pay, they were willing to pay more money for the same thing because they had a choice over certain items and they had a choice not to have it certain weeks. Huh. And that's always been important in Sweden because people go away in the summer and they, oh, yeah, yeah. they find it extremely difficult to coordinate with someone else to pick up the veg boxes. Like people aren't so social <laughs> as in other countries in Europe. Huh. And it, it's, it strikes me as very bizarre, but it, it's an issue for people. And often people take quite long holidays here. So, so what we've considered doing now is reining back in on the choice and just offer one type of share, basically, again. Possibly two, but we want to minimize handling and minimize, like something we've always done, like we've done tailored orders because people are willing to pay a premium, we're more willing to tailor their orders. But I think we've considered already to get rid of that and just offer the simplest minimal handling way to do everything, which benefits yeah, yeah. us and it will benefit the customer too. 
Yeah, and even but other than that, to be a bit of an inconvenience, I would imagine there'd be a good reception because they can see that it's in their best interest from a sanitary perspective. Yes, definitely. And I think obviously this situation is making only is only increasing the number of people who will identify the limitations of our typical food supply. Yeah, And something really interesting that's going on is a lot of big conventional farms are, are going to collapse this year because farm workers from Poland, Lithuania aren't coming. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me. Now, I'm, I'm someone that's sometimes uh, got a finger pointed at me because I've got people coming here for training who are getting a training they can't get at pretty much any farm I can think of in Europe. And, you know, that all oh, that free labor thing, which is, is so out of context anyway, as I've explained in so many videos, I try and share, you know, my thoughts about this thing. But what's really interesting is that most people don't know how most of the conventional and organic conventional vegetables in Europe are, are grown. And the mass influx of highly underpaid Eastern Europeans that run the show. Oof. Or and in the case around here in Spain, uh, people from North Africa and migrant workers from that Morocco area. and yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But that's gonna be, yeah, that's gonna change business models, and and maybe that's for the best. But I imagine it'll be a bit rocky in between. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it must feel good at least to be in an industry that is going to be considered essential as long as there are humans. And there's at least a certain amount of job security in that. Not that you were worried about that to begin with. Especially yeah, I it hope so. I mean, that holistic plan where, I mean, even if you weren't doing any business in some bizarre scenario, you've got all of your bases covered as far as the needs of your, your family and, and then some. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, like I've always described this farm as a homestead that runs enterprises for profit. And it, it wouldn't interest me to do any single enterprise on its own. I, I wouldn't find that interesting or stimulating. Like we're, we're farming to produce epic food and we, it's partly because we want to eat epic food. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for the resilience of diverse farming. And it's, it's great to always see the amount of new people coming into farming, but I'm, yeah, I'm often a little bit bemused how there are so few diverse farms. Most people are picking up one enterprise and of course you've got to start somewhere, but I suspect some, a lot of people aren't exposed to the true benefit of having diversified farms and and i mean that from from a human health perspective from an economic perspective from an ecosystem perspective too and mm -hmm. um, and i think that's it, it yeah it's hard to know what supply chains are gonna fall out in the in the prospect of an extended crisis but it's you know it's always good not to have all your eggs in one basket as it were <laughs> and i i think a lot of 
I, I think the repercussions of this, if it goes on longer, the, the biggest repercussions are going to be the long-term economic consequences. No, and they're going to they're going to be far more drastic than the virus could ever be. Yeah, and, and that's really going to shake up the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but that's and really going to change the way supply lines work, and and it will affect people doing what we're doing also in ways that we can't foresee. Mm-hmm. So any degree of resiliency you can build in is is going to help with that. But it's I think it's too early to really say. I, I see a lot of stuff online right now, people jumping into, there's a crisis, let's find the opportunities here. And yeah, we have to do that. But I think it's it's also very premature in some ways because a lot's going to transpire that we, we probably haven't even anticipated yet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, nothing like this has happened within our generation. And I mean... The context is even different from similar epidemics in the past, uh, given the way that we're all interconnected. The global community is entirely interdependent at the moment. And so making predictions from this vantage point is always going to come with uh, limitations. Um, yeah. And so, look, let's put the, the current situation aside a little bit, because obviously it's going to play into anything that you would talk about for the current context and, and moving into the future. But... Um, so look, you've traveled a lot in your life and you've consulted with and visited farms all over the world. So I'd imagine that you have a really good reference for comparison. And this is something that I'm really trying to understand better since I'm new to Europe. And though I've worked on farms in New Zealand, Australia, Guatemala, US, all over the place, um, I'm still struggling to kind of understand what some of the advantages and disadvantages to starting farming enterprises specifically in Europe, um, particularly when it comes to factors like markets, land access and regulations, a lot of the things that really determine the success in the initial stages. Can you speak on that a little? Yeah. Um, well, it's a big one, but I... And obviously it's different by country. Europe is not one thing anymore yes. than Africa or America is, right? But within that... Well, I'd say it's much more diverse than America and probably much less diverse than Africa. But, I mean, America, the differences between the states there are nothing like the differences between European countries and cultures. Yeah, I mean, not it's, at all. <laughs> it, it's, it's not comparable. So the markets are very different all over the place. You know, here in Northern Europe, these are very affluent countries where people typically like to prioritize spending as little as possible on meaningful things like good food, but they will always have like the latest iPhone and the biggest TV and all these kind of things. <laughs> so there's a bit of a conundrum, you know, it, it doesn't like I live next door to a multi multi-millionaire who will drive out of their way extra 20 kilometers to buy you know, from like one of these super cheap chains, like Lidl or something, but it's not, it's <laughs> yeah, a different yeah, yeah. one in Sweden. But that's someone that can afford to eat anything they want, you know? So that's a, it's a and funny got thing. you right next to them? <laughs> yeah. They're super <laughs> sweet people, but it's like it, it's an affluent place, but the cost of living is high and the cost of taxation is high here. I've been surprised actually, as I've been connected to Germany a bunch in the last year or two, and it's, there's a lot going on in Germany right now. And I've been surprised to see 
nearly all organic good produce, the sorts of things we produce, is more expensive in Germany and all feed costs, etc., are lower. So there's some great little businesses starting up there. But in terms of Northern Europe, because I think it's quite different in the East and the South, obviously, but the market here is, is good and strong and people are fairly receptive. I'd say like the Nordic countries up here, it's quite new. Like if you go down a bit to France, Germany, Holland, Belgium, England, people are, have more choice naturally, you know, like here, the, the, I think also because the population is very limited here. So inside Stockholm, you can find what you want, but out in the rural places like this, there just isn't much competition. I mean, I, I bought pastured broilers to Sweden. They didn't exist, you know? And the idea of pastured eggmobiles, I don't think anyone was doing that when I got here. So these are things that are quite old and common in many places but certainly in sweden it's you know we've really pioneered a lot of these things and it's starting to catch on which is great so so our market situation is quite different to to a lot of places in europe where these things are familiar and you you're going to have more competition going on and also population density where you know i know people at home in the uk that sell everything from their farms within a few miles of their farm and we don't even have people living a few miles from our farm so it's yeah. it's a the, the access to market specific. i would say yes and it, it's you can't speak across europe in that way it's so different and in terms of land access that's what makes this country it's why i moved to this country because i could buy a farm with cash and you know this farm cost me ninety thousand euros and i put about a hundred and ten thousand euros in doing it up and it's turning over more than that combined sum every six months but in england this farm would be a million euros and probably you'd have to rebuild all the buildings to meet regulations and your selling price for all the products we produce here would be lower so it's why I've put so much of my educational efforts into crunching numbers and getting your context clear. Cause it's like, you can, I have no doubt whatever country you drop me in, I could plan a business that will function, but it's going to look different according to land prices, infrastructure prices and the market accessibility. That's something that each and everyone has to thoroughly analyze for themselves because I, I definitely can relate to like a you know the the long term trainings we've been doing at our farm each year are have been so critical for so many people starting out and it's a reality check. It's a springboard and a reality check. That's what this farm really is. It's you know, people come here with a pie in the sky dream of wanting to do this and that and it's like it it soon gets slapped out of them. You know, and many people come with the dream of being a market gardener and they leave and set up a chicken business and they thrive in it and they work half the time and earn more. And it's it's really important that people first clarify their context and then plan a business. And I think a lot of the, it's this it's this same dilemma I've been playing with for the last years. It's the future of this type of farming relies on the 
flexible minded entrepreneurial folks that aren't coming from a long line of farmers stuck in their way, stuck in pride and arrogance. This is how we do it. Grandfather did it like this. I do it like this. And certainly down Spain, Portugal, you have the most glaring examples of that where they're plowing bare terracotta soils under their almonds and and carob trees. And it's pride and arrogance. And it's, yeah, well, it's... (laughs) It's, I see it all around me and I'm not even in one of the worst areas. Yeah, well, it's glaringly obvious there. But the same thing happens all over. It's just we've sure. got a bit more humidity to, to cover it up. But Yeah, not as brittle of the ecosystem. Well, so look, yeah. what you were talking about, let's, let's go in a little bit deeper to that. Um, like I've been speaking to regenerative ag practitioners, teachers, and advocates for a good few years now. And one of the reasons why I keep coming back to your information and resources is because of your really thorough analysis of those farm enterprises and the special financial modeling that helps you to make essential decisions on your own farm and its development. So like you kind of glossed over some of the criteria that helps you decide on what business enterprises are going to be worthwhile for you. Can you kind of walk me through some of the essential questions and information gathering that you do when you're assessing a a potential enterprise? Yeah, well, you know, the yeah, I'll try to do that. And I think the 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 true answer to that is the book I wrote. Now I'm not just saying that to promote my book, but it that's exactly why I wrote Regenerative Agriculture. That's yeah. entirely what the book is addressing. Because and for the I listeners just felt at home, like that has been my um, my quarantine reading. <laughs> I've finally started to break down that book and read it all the way through like a novel whereas before i kind of skimmed it because it's a 700 page more uh volume worth getting through but i i highly recommend it yeah well the, the reason that came about is i would have people come in here on their training and you know they would say right i've got three hectares i want to do micro dairying it's like yeah you'll never make economy out of that. Or I inherited my father's 100-acre farm in the south of England and I want to set up a market garden. <laughs> it's just like, nah, that, that's not responsible enough. It's like people will give their leg for that farm and you just want to make a little market garden in the corner. Right. It's like, that's not a plan. Right. Yeah. So like something about taking responsibility and and seeing the bigger picture is part of it. Now, in terms of, uh, that's not to say anyone should do anything. It's, it really, of course, must come down to, to their context. And most people aren't very clear about that. So that's always the first bit we do. But when it comes down, like the, the reason I wrote the book, and I, I, it was a torturous process because I'm trying to compare like 13, 14 different enterprises to give people a starting point, because I know most people coming into this type of farming aren't from a farming background. And when people aren't from a farming background, they have no sense of scale. They have no sense of life cycles and seasonal flows. They have no sense of how heavy a machine is and why you shouldn't stick your arm in there. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very clear the practicalities of both action and thinking of someone that's grown up in this way. And so what I wanted to do is present people who are like, look, 
Okay, you've just told me you have six hectares, you have 50,000 euros to invest, and you need to make 30,000 euros a year to maintain your quality of life. Cool. Here are three things that fit the bill. And everything else here clearly doesn't. Right? So now you've got a starting point. So give up your dream to be a snail farmer and have a look at these three things. Let's plug in the numbers to these spreadsheets. Let's look at how the daily workflow would look, the seasonal workflow would look. Let's have a go out in the field. Let's do it every day and see, do you actually like this? You know, do you enjoy it? And where could you make a unique inroad into the market where you live, etc.? So, so once the context is clear, what people actually want to do with their lives and their time, then it comes down to numbers and size. It's like how much size do you need to run this micro dairy to get you 45,000 euros out net? Okay, well, you're not in Sweden. Here in Sweden, it's going to look like this for me because it takes me this much land to feed a cow. But down where you are, ah, oh, you can feed a cow on 60% of that land. Okay, so let's adjust this to your setting. So we can really get into the nuts and bolts and lay out a, a form of recipe. And then people actually can see the vision and actuate it. And that's been really successful with our training participants but it, it really comes down to a lot of thinking and and visualization and a lot of analysis of numbers yeah and, and that's one of the things that i like that's so well outlined in the book is that it really it profiles these enterprises that you've tested really well now definitely you've tested them to your specific context but by sliding the meters and adjusting the numbers specific to where someone is and what the resources are they're working with these are pretty well uh, able to adapt to most of what's within this continent here. I would say so. I think it's relevant across the States, Canada, all over. I mean, I know people are taking a lot of benefit from it in weird, wonderful places where I wouldn't expect it to be of use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, all the better. But, it's just the resilience the pattern, of the other model. Yeah, and the pattern aspect of it is applicable to anything. But it, I think it's really, yeah, as I said, I, I could apply this to anywhere. I would need to do the same thinking that that person needs to do, but I can prompt that person to do that thinking quicker and more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And I can also set the boundaries by denying them the right to follow a certain thought train if I just can see it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. you know so part of my work is actually carefully weaving the the sort of financial and ecological aspect with their social spiritual life and and in that i'm quite careful to to step back and step forward to work with that person's unique character and temperament but but I'm very quick to shut down things that are not helpful. You know, people often want to dream and not see things as they are. And I don't know how to explain that very clearly, but, but I guess it's, a, it's an element of mentoring, you know? Yeah. I'm sort of accelerating their thinking pathway as well as their practical skills pathway. Mm -hmm. But 
but it really helps to run those numbers and we're doing a lot of background work this year to really up the ante with the online things that we can offer to help people get started because i think it's so helpful for people like you can you can get someone to drop this fantasy they've had for years just by looking through one data set yeah. You know, it, it just becomes startlingly obvious to someone like, nah, this is not possible. And another thing that's another thing that I, I see in that is that some people are guilty about making a living. You know, some people have a very hard time setting the price on their time. Hmm. You know. A lot of people just want to get by. It's like, well, what's that look like? Do you need 10 grand a year do you need 150 grand a year to get by what does that actually mean a lot of people can't answer that very clearly particularly young people because it's mostly young people that are coming into our training program as they're about to really springboard off and set this up but once those things are clear once your holistic context is clear and your financial means and needs are clear then it's pretty straightforward to set up a recipe that is likely to lead to success if diligence, hard work, commitment are present. And if those things aren't present, I doubt anything's going to work. You know, no <laughs> yeah, one you can nobody, crunch the numbers all you want, but if you're not willing to work for it. Yeah. I don't know any successful business person who hasn't put the time in. You know, mm. we've all done years of 100 hour weeks. Everyone I know that's been successful. Yeah. And if you've got that kind of spirit, then then this is a life you can do for sure. So. So I think that's, that's really important. I don't message, know. If... Yeah. And like you said, really giving the reality for it, but also the hope that if you put in the work, if you really do proper assessments, this is not an unrealistic thing, despite a lot of what we see in the news about, you know, farming being in a, in a not profitable lifestyle or just something that isn't viable in the modern context. Cause it, it throws a wrench in both sides of it so that you don't go too far with the dreaming aspect and, and start, you yeah. know, a bunch of, enterprises that you can't possibly make meet uh make the ends meet on but also redefining the the possibilities at the same time and and that middle line is really important for people to understand yeah and something i've been i haven't fully formulated my thoughts around it but it it's it's around temperament and character and i like definitely farming is not for everyone and I'm mm. becoming, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm becoming more confident in telling people that when mm. I identify that. Because I'm in, a, I'm in a strange situation where, you know, I have, I'm very careful how I approach the interns that come here. We go through a very deep process because we're living very closely in each other's space. And characteristically, I've been spending, you know, from 6.30 in the morning till in the old days till eight, nine, ten o'clock at night with them for months. And so I'm very, I watch a lot and I really scoping out where people are at and trying to address them in a way that will speak to them where they're at. But I'm, I'm not afraid to say anything to anyone, but I definitely see I'm becoming more confident to encourage people to consider other things if i see that they don't have the spirit that it takes well speak on you that know. for a little minute then what what is it that you notice that you would define as the spirit that it takes to to 
have this type of line of work and lifestyle? I think it focuses or is centered around like commitment, discipline, the ability to create, like to optimize workflows and the ability to put those things into every single element of life. Mm. So I, I would see like the people that have that spirit have that spirit in everything they do in life, you know, whether it's work, rest, study, play. And there's always people that want a bit of spoon feeding. And it's like, hey, you know, you paid money to come here and learn. You want me to spoon feed you? It's like if you if you haven't got that get up and get them thing, it's like you're not you're not gonna make it in this field. Cause it's like running a business I don't know anyone that runs any type of business that isn't hustling and putting that time in and they're working hard and fast for years. And on top of that, it's a farm business. It's like, you know, there's no steeper road to climb. (laughs) There's so many variables. Yeah, no, it's totally doable, but it, it's not for everyone. And I think that, everyone that I've identified that's succeeding that has passed through our place and through our trainings, whatever, they've all got that same characteristic. They, they've come here as a paid, they're paying for training and they will put in the same energy and dedication as if they were getting paid any amount of salary. Like it's not, you know, it doesn't, that the life circumstances aren't affecting their commitment and dedication to showing up moment to moment in life. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the fundamental characteristic. And do you feel like that is something that can be taught or either you've got it or you know, that's the thing mm. you've either got it or you've got, you could teach yourself that, but not, not, it's not the right word. It's not about teaching yourself that you, you can develop yourself and that might arise, I guess is another way to say that, but you can't teach someone that I'm very clear about that. Mm. The way that we've created that culture here is I demonstrate that through my work ethic and I've chosen to surround myself as far as possible with a team who click straight into that. And we don't, sit around and talk about it we're demonstrating it to the point that you would feel out of place if you weren't in that same vibe you know mm-hmm. and that has a massive influence on people you know it can pick people out of weird frames of mind and perspectives and it can it can empower them and change the way they interact that's on the one end but it it can clearly demonstrate to other people that they're not there, they're not up for it, you know, which is a useful outcome too. Yeah. I mean, but I think, I, I definitely think you can't teach them that you can inspire someone, but people tend to have to go through these kind of Kairos moments, you know, some kind of like often people need to go through the depths of depression or burnout or heartache or loss to, to step up their level of responsibility and showing up in the world, you know? Some people have always done that. But I don't think you can lead someone there. You can just demonstrate it. And 
that can influence people. But I don't think you can teach that. I don't, I've never met anyone that can teach that. <laughs> that would be the next challenge. <laughs> well, so mm. look, we've talked a lot about kind of setting up a resilient business model. And certainly in the last handful of years, it's been less than a decade now since you got Ridgedale off the ground and have put out all these resources on the steps that you've taken to make this happen. Um, you've passed some really impressive milestones on the farm development, and it seems that a lot of your initial building and enterprise development has kind of given way now to fine-tuning, maintenance, and increasing efficiency. So my question is, what does it look like for your daily schedule, and has it changed how you observe and run the farm now, or are you just kind of taking on more projects now that the initial ones are kind of running? Well, it's a it's an interesting year to ask that because I wasn't planning to actually be on the farm all year this mm. year. So my plan this year, so the last couple of years, I've really started to notice the impact we've had. Now, you know, I get a lot of email and messages and I, I'm aware of some of the influence, but the last couple of years, I've really noticed it. I've seen hundreds of eggmobiles that look like ours all over the world popping up i've seen so many people take our approach to market gardening and scale it and run with it and run their businesses i've seen other people making micro abattoirs based on ours and i decided last year that i wanted to take a year off to rest a bit because i got to the edge of burnout and to the point where I decided, no, I need a year out and really get perspective on where to put my energy now because I'm in a pretty interesting place now where I have a full-time job outside the farm also and I have a child. And so it's I, I need to really get a bit of perspective on where's best to put my energy to fulfill the educational objectives I have running the farm. Now, last year, we took back interns again. So I'm working with a small group of up to 10 people. And I love that program because there's, like, basically it's a program for people who've realized they want to go to ag school, but ag school is not going to give them anything like what they need. And that's what that program is for. It's, it's the highest level of engagement in regenerative ag that I've ever seen offered anywhere in the planet it's three months full-time half in the class studying very intensely and then targeted work in the field to experience the particular things that are in the program so they're not really running the farm they're doing targeted work experience to give them the confidence to leave with the business plan and land plan that they've created during that time and many of them of, like I would say a high proportion have gone off and done that. But last year, it was a, a group of a lot of young people and I noticed the age gap is increasing. And I don't mean that just in that I'm getting older. I also mean that I'm concerned about generations in their early 20s now. The, the loss of the value of things that I hold dear, like commitment, discipline, living by your word. If you say you're doing something, you are reliable and trustworthy. So they, these things don't seem as valued anymore. 
the, the world is changing in a very rapid way that such that the generation gaps are getting shorter, I think. And I still hold a lot of the values of my parents' generation very dear. And I believe that they're fundamental to the well-being of our society. So I'm a little concerned about things. And I got pretty demotivated last year because I felt like I'm putting a stupid amount of energy into what I do. And it's to a very limited group of people, some of whom I know do not even understand the benefit of what's going on here and will not put this to use. And why am I giving my time like this? Because I'm getting older and tired. I'm getting tired. I can't work at the rate I used to. So I really started to consider like how better to leverage my work. And that led me to really consider how to leverage what I do online and to try and collaborate with other people because I don't have time and don't have the skills to really leverage that. And so what I decided to do was take a year off the farm to actually travel around Europe and see all the farms that we've influenced and that our students have set up and go film them and document them. And for me, that would be a big rest. It would be really interesting to see what we've spawned and it would also fulfill another strong function, which is for Johanna to take more of a leadership role outside on the farm operation, because she's been very much central to the sales and communications in the background. And so I kind of felt like alleviating the focus on me. I started to feel like people were coming here, not for the value of the training that was being led, but or becoming increasingly influenced by me, you know, like coming mm -hmm. from me in some way. You and become I a don't, farming guru, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not happy about that, you know. So, so I felt like it was forming into this really nice thing that was leading to our context, our family context, changing into, like we felt like we needed to address that. Time has been a limiting factor. And we decided we want to, you know, take it a bit easier and take a bit of the, the fruit, take a bit of the harvest of the work we've put in. Because I calculated while I was away on an extended holiday this winter, I calculated that I've put in 15 years of work weeks on the actual farm in the last six years. Mm. That's the hours I've put in. And I can't do that anymore. And I don't need to do that anymore. So, so actually, yeah, I plan to be away all summer and do this project, which looks like I won't be able to travel, but I'm rapidly creating a online solution to that with a collaborator. So that's been another big thing that's happened for me is I've finally found someone to closely collaborate with. And tell me about that that's, then. I know the farming like a hero is is the name of the project and and that a lot of things are kind of up in the air now and perhaps the travel won't be possible but do you want to kind of outline some of the things that are coming available and the collaboration that you're getting into Yeah so we um well this lady is a Danish lady who who contacted me and wrote me a very clear well thought through structured proposal of how 
she could use her professional skills to leverage what I'm doing. And it really struck my attention because I've always seen that education is going fully online and that schools will just not be necessary in the future except for some kind of local mentorship around topics that cannot be dealt with online. But digital learning gives us access to the best people on any subject and I think there's something very powerful about that. And I thought it was going to develop in a certain way and it seems to have developed in a different way you know uniquely powerful around the world for how people are accessing knowledge and and actually have attention for and so I've been really considering that of like well why am I putting my energy into these 10 people when I could surely reach 10,000 people with the same effort and I've been, you know, pretty much flying solo, trying to make videos, trying to put together stuff for people, like resources. But it's, it's definitely true that having someone professional that knows how to package that and present that is, you know, able to reach far more people in a powerful way. And so this lady wrote a year-long plan, step-by-step, step, of how to basically overhaul everything I do online. And I was like, wow, this is perfect because I've been looking for someone to collaborate or support me for years, but it's not, it's not a job I could offer someone because the time it would take me to train someone to help me, I may as well do it myself. Yeah, so I've yeah. just kept on doing it myself. So to find someone who already has followed us for years, has taken our online training, has read our book, who knows enough about me to know the context of how I'm approaching things and can already foresee exactly how they can help is powerful and perfect. So, so what happened with that is the first part of it is to try and bring a lot more value with this tour. So my original idea is, right, I'm going to jump in my truck, drive around Europe, film all these farms and chuck it on YouTube. And that's all good in one way, but we felt like there's a lot more we could do with that and one big part of that is creating community like to help people connect like something i noticed when i filmed a few of our students farms in the last couple of years is that when i put those videos online they all started connecting up and i noticed that through ridgedale is a lot of the interns and core team have connected across the years and it's an amazing network there's there are a dozen farms in Europe that are run by our interns and they work and cross pollinate between each other. I know interns that have worked at five different people's farms who are all interns here. Wow. And there's farms run by three of our interns who are all from different years here, you know, and like these connections are amazing. And I've been thinking about also this one degree of separation or two degrees of separation where it's like, you know, if I, like I know what I've exposed my interns and network to. And because I've spent a long time with them, I got a good sense of who they are and how they think. So if this guy who's worked with me for a season here says this guy is trustworthy and cool, then that one degree of separation is okay. And that's how we build a network. I've had people here sent here by 
some of the most famous people in the field who have just turned out to be absolutely not useful with us. And they might have been perfect with that other person, but their context is so entirely different that it just doesn't translate, right? And that's not to say anything bad about anyone. It seems like a natural consequence of different contexts. But by keeping a certain degree of separation, you can avoid that. Because there's so many people looking, you know, I get asked daily by email, do you know a good place in Europe to go and learn about agroforestry or whatever it is? So the skill of a good network is going to be keeping it so it's not open to everyone. You know, it's open to one degree of separation so mm-hmm. everyone can vouch for everyone. Not vouch for, but you know what I mean. Like yeah, it keeps no, the it connections tight. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's another piece that we want to do. It's like after seeing like the people that I made little videos with, it brings them a massive amount of attention and it starts them all connecting together. And I notice a lot of people look to the States to watch videos, whatever, but it's like, man, we have so much going on in Europe and loads better stuff. In fact, most of the stuff going on in the States was inspired and came from Europe. It's just, Mm. you don't know about that person. And so that's, I started thinking, I'll call it the unsung hero tour. I'll go and put these people on a pedestal and use my platform to shine light on these people who do awesome stuff that you haven't heard of. Cause we've all heard of the famous names, the Joel Salatins, et cetera. But it's like, what about this dude over here that no one's heard of who's awesome at doing this thing. And, and that was the basis of the tour. And so we decided to keep on the hero theme, but it's going to be called farm like a hero tour. It's going to be called the farm like a hero experience, but we're going to start off by doing like zoom meetings like we're on now. Yeah. And if possible later in the summer, I'll go on the tour still on whichever bits I can. There's no doubt that the film I can make on the farm, a long form video of an hour and a half with, with the farmer is going to be much more compelling and informative. So, it's all, like people say, well, why don't you do that next year? But I can't just leave my farm for a year. It's pretty yeah, it unprecedented that, that I was going to leave this year. And I have a family also. So it's not so simple. I can't just go next year. So I decided, okay, I'm prepared to do it fully in conference calls if need be. But the way we can make more value out of that is to create uh, an ebook with all these farms. So here's 100 farms. And we asked them to write 5,000 words and tell us their revenue and their net and the investments they put in, the things that are going good, you know, get some data out of there. So that by the end of it, we've got 100 awesome regenerative farms around Europe. And it's like, oh, so can you tell me somewhere good that I can go and learn about quail production? It's like, well, there you go. Bam, have a look at that and really create this resource. Yeah. So we're going to build a dedicated Facebook group and have live questions and answers and particularly be speaking and connecting people around country specific stuff. So how people are dealing with this coronavirus and the restrictions to selling, et cetera, how people are dealing with local regulations. Because one thing that happens is people come, they look at our eggmobiles, they go home and they build their eggmobile without checking their local regulations. I always tell them to make sure that fits their context. I've built it in this way for these reasons. 
and it doesn't mean you should build yours this way but people are looking for standardized solutions despite the fact there aren't any in farming but but this network is really needed to help people with a de one degree of separation as it were now something i've noticed i don't know if you'd agree with this oliver is that i feel like the era of good facebook groups died when the old group Darren Doxy used to run stopped. That was like mm. the last of the, the good Facebook groups. I don't use Facebook groups. I other think than those kind of died business. before I even got onto them. And yeah, I agree. The quality of discourse on those is uh, it's, I'm sure it's not what it was originally intended to be. No. And it's not just about quality of discourse. It's that I don't trust your answer to my problem with my chickens because I don't know anything about you or who you are or your context. Right. And that's where the degree of separation is important. It's like I got a whole network of people who I know enough about their thinking to know how to analyze their answers also. And that's the sort of network that's really strong. Well, it's everything so in summary, yeah yeah so in summary that's that's the plan we're gonna actually launch it as in the next few weeks uh hopefully in the beginning of may we're gonna start a subscription site it's gonna be very cheap price of a coffee every week but it's gonna honor the you know i think we've estimated to put 300 hours just into making the interviews and that's just if we do it on computer if i was driving around europe that's six months full-time work so yeah. it's a lot of work and it's unrealistic for me to do that completely free because i've already invested 15 grand to set up sites and learning platforms and basically as part of a bigger project we're transitioning all our online stuff to professional more professional uh, hostings and programs to optimize that experience for people and that's what my collaborator does she works with uh, copywriting and online running online sales and promotions and branding and all this stuff all this stuff that I kind of never studied I've done all right for myself but to have a professional on board who knows how to leverage that can just bring far more benefit all over the place and take a lot of work off my shoulders, which is the main help for me. So yeah. And so you can't do everything times. at a high level. You best to focus on what you're good at and leave certain things to other professionals. Yes. There's a lot to get a little diluted if you try and do everything. Yeah, it's totally true, but it, that's part of the process and it's exactly the process I've been through. It's like it, just to find someone who can do that, it's like it's not the sort of thing I just want to pay someone to help me with. It's, it's got to be someone with real skin in the game, in my game, you know? And yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to, it's not something you could contrive, it's something that has to happen naturally. But it's a cool process to 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 see how that's unfolded i've been really wanting that for some years but it's really happening in in a natural way that feels like it's going to bring a lot of benefit to to me to my collaborator and to a whole network of people so we'll, well see how that unfolds, i'm super excited about it personally I, I do you have any dates that you can say yet or is it still a little undefined we're hoping to launch the like we're rebuilding the website so everything 
we do online and it's culminating at the end of the year with launching a few different online training options and it's all totally being redone and put on a different platform and a lot more content added uh, but the farm like a hero tour will i i basically had the, the the physical trip was divided up into sections starting 18th of april so and that was to go to spain and south of france and portugal before coming back here to host Joel Salatin for our masterclass at the farm. So I'm basically cancelling that bit of the trip for now. And we've had to reschedule Joel to the autumn here, hoping that that can go ahead in the autumn. So I was basically planning to take some of the later dates and move them to the front and start offering twice weekly long form uh, interviews from, well, it'll be about, we're, we're hoping to launch in a month's time, basically. Okay. So 1st of May. And, and what that would allow me to do, the fiddling that's been going on in the background, because it's obviously been a mammoth task, just organizing a route around Europe and getting everyone to dates where I would show up. So it's been a, a massive planning work that now I'm trying to work off the back of that and keep the as many of those dates as possible so that I can say, right, obviously I'm not coming to visit you, but let's talk this day. And then please, if you want to be included in this book, here's a task for you to do for the rest of the day. Because <laughs> they've already slotted, slotted it out for me to be here. I'm really excited about that. I think definitely, you know, having interviews is going to be less rewarding than filming farms, but I think that's where the book could be really backing that up because I think the conversations will go in different directions naturally, whereas the book will be, you know, a formula that's the same that allows people to compare many different places across different countries. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super excited for it. Well, you can definitely count me yeah. and I'm really looking forward to this coming out and understanding the the context of my area even better and hopefully linking up with other people doing regenerative farming in this area of Spain and then Southern Europe in general. Um, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, now, one last question before you go. Now that you've reached this level of development with your farm, what are some of the key goals that you have for the coming years? Is there any major goals that you're still kind of looking to achieve? Yeah, our main goals focus around balance, like time, family balance, work-life balance. And it, there was certainly some years of just keeping scaling up and wanting to push that and push that. And I really let go of that finally where, like I always had a dream to see how much can be done on this space and just push it to the maximum. But we don't need to do that. It's like we don't need to do a lot of things that we do. We've been doing them for other people's benefit. It's like we have all our food. We don't have debt. We earn enough money. It's like it, we don't need any more. So that was kind of like a, a big realization a year and a half, two years ago. So like, no, we don't need to do this. Like it, 
it will benefit some people, but at what cost? Uh, you know, if it's costing mm. us our health, it's not worth it. So our real our goal now is just to sit back and enjoy it more and take some of the stress away. And and the big part for us with that is is bringing in longer term people. That's been the biggest challenge here. Is that it's amazing the opportunities we've been able to give people but we are literally starting with new people we've always tried to have at least one person who's done the season here the next year but it's not always possible because the people that are really good and naturally the people that go off and start their own thing you know so it's very hard to get the best people to stay and it's also a big, I, I had a few years ago, I asked some of the best people that have been here to join the actual business and give them, you know, an opportunity that I doubt they would ever get offered again. But it's a big ask because I'm asking them to come and plant roots in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. And mm. they're, they're typically not Swedish people. But now over this winter, we've started to work with local young families and there are several people who we foresee could be you know longer term in place so that we because the actual work we do is fairly easeful you know you need four people to run this farm at full production and that will pay them a white collar salary but you then get four or five months off and it's quite easeful if we if we didn't have to train people from scratch it would yeah, just get yeah, easier yeah. and easier and easier so that's what we're we're dreaming about is just <laughs> having the you know like every year you forget you forget like you know people coming that just like it blows your mind like people haven't they it's very hard to judge online even talking to people on face to face on skype or whatever you know, people say all kinds of things. I've had people that are <laughs> chainsaw certified teaching people to sculpt bits of wood that they're standing on with sandals, you know, and mm. people that have just come out of Buddha feeding chickens, handling chicken shit who have not washed their hands and started like handling salad for 30 people with, you know, it's like, yeah. Stuff that just blows your mind because it's like, uh, hello. But it happens every year. It's like people need nannying. And if you don't come from this life, you just don't necessarily think straight, you know? Yeah. And so our biggest dream, however silly it sounds, is to like just not have to do any of that hand-holding and just work with a few people who, you know, who just know how to do their thing and... That's our, our biggest goal and just watch the ecosystem develop. I mean, it's been amazing just seeing how many species have moved into our farm and yeah, the resilience I mean, the droughts a couple of years ago. Accelerated trajectory. That's incredible. And it's really interesting to hear like with this level of advancement, because I mean, for most people, what is it now? Seven years into farming would not be anywhere near the level where they could start to coast or start worrying about the the development things that you just talked about, but uh, it just goes to show how like, you know, it, <laughs> it must've been an absolutely Herculean feat to get all of these things off the ground while running educational programs. I mean, I've done half of those things and burned out because of poor planning. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit. And, uh, and to see that like it's gotten to this point so quickly is, is really interesting to watch. 
yeah, it's cool. It, but it is, as I said, it, you know, I really have put in 15 work years. It's not come without cost. I've got gray hairs and wrinkles that I shouldn't have genetically right now. <laughs> and I, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. But I did want to do that before, you know, like I, I was burning up. It was, I, I, the only way I can explain that is like, something moving through me you know mm. it wasn't decisions i made i just woke up every day pumped to go but i don't i've, I've been quite clear with people that i don't necessarily recommend trying to do things so fast like i am i have put a lot of energy into planning and also came to it with a lot of experience that you know i had planned a lot of properties so i i was very confident what i was doing and it's just fun. I think I posted on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, one of these things popped up to remind you. And it was a photo of me in Thailand. It was where I met Matt, who was a significant person here. And I just drew the design of the farm. I hadn't even, I'd spent two hours on the farm under snow. And I just remember explaining what I was going to do when I got home. And it was that spring I came back from Southeast Asia that we started. And just funny seeing that photo and seeing like every single thing we plan to do has come to pass and a few things even quicker. But it's wow. from just a lot of planning and it's a joyful process. A lot of people don't put enough time into the, the planning and number crunching because quite frankly, it's pretty mind-boggling and there's better things to do but it's it's like um i can't think of a good analogy but like spreadsheets like most people turn their heads when you know roll their eyes when they see that but but the people that are going to succeed get excited by that because when you're in control of those numbers and when you're in control of the overall plan and time flow it gives you a calm confidence and the sureness of what you're doing. And that's really important. Wow. It, it directs you of the priority of when to take certain actions and what needs to be prioritized. And yeah, that's a big part of what we try and really like show people a window into when they're here. But I don't recommend people try so much at once. It's definitely been stressful at times <laughs> because of that. <laughs> I can only imagine. Well, look, Richard, that's a really good place to kind of transition over. Could you tell us a little bit about, well, for the, the sake of our listeners, where they can find all of your information and their resources so that they can get plugged in to what you have uh, coming out soon? Yeah, well, I guess like most stuff comes out on our YouTube channel. So you can look up Richard Perkins on YouTube. You'll find documentation of the last years of our farm it's it's not the most organized of youtube channels but it's extremely content rich if you put the time into it Oof, and on our facebook page at ridgedale permaculture so basically all things that i update people on are on there that's where you can find our book which is over at regenerativeagriculture.co we sell a pdf or the hard copy that we ship out from the farm every week day anywhere in the world and other 
all our other websites are totally being rebuilt and I'll be announcing that on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page as, as and when they come out. And the next thing that will be coming up is the Farm Like a Hero experience that hopefully will kick off 1st of May and it'll be all over the internet, I guess. <laughs> Marvelous. There you go. Well, Richard, it was really a pleasure being able to connect with you, especially in such a unique time in all of human history, if we're going to go that far. Um, thank yeah. you so much for, for your price. observations and your advice and, um, on these things. And I really look forward to uh, plugging into the network that you continue to build and hopefully having some more things to contribute to it myself. That sounds awesome. Yeah, great to speak to you, Oliver. It's really nice to connect with you again. All right. Thanks so much, Richard. You take care. We'll be in touch soon. See you. Bye. Bye. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.